This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. This is 1 to 7. You can turn there in your Bibles or find it on page 948 in the Bibles in your rows. It's also printed in your bulletins. Romans 13, verses 1 to 7. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resist what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to a good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all that is what is owned to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said that the church is meant to be the light of the world, a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. And then Jesus goes on to say, nor do you light a lamp and put it under a basket, but instead you put it on a stand and it gives light to the whole house. In other words, Jesus is saying the church is not meant to be something that is hidden away, but rather is to be a public community engaged with the world around us, which means then we'll need some sort of game plan for how to relate to the secular world and to secular authorities in particular. In the language of St. Augustine, how is the city of God to relate to the city of man? And in the previous chapter, Romans 12, which we've been walking through these last uh, four or five weeks or so, Paul developed for us uh, four basic Christian relationships. He talked first about our relationship to God, uh, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. That is, we are to present ourselves as living sacrifices. That is, offer all of yourself to God. Secondly, he talked about our relationship to ourselves, verses 3 to 8. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. Thirdly, our relationship to one another, verses 9 to 16. We are one body with many parts, and then the Uh, glue that holds this community, this unity and diversity together is love. And then finally, at the end of chapter 12, verses 17 to 21, he talks about our relationship to our enemies. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And now we come to Romans 13, And Paul turns to yet another relationship that we have, our relationship to authorities in general and to the government in particular. And this teaching may challenge some of our assumptions. It may challenge some of our attitudes. It may challenge some of our practices. But let's play a little game uh, before we get started this morning. All right, this is called uh, Love It 
or hate it, okay? And so I want you to play this in your head, because this could get weird if we do it. Uh, I'm not quite brave enough to have you sort of cheer or boo uh, as we go this morning. But in your head, in your mind, in your psyche, um, when I say a word, I want you to think, do I love it, right? This is the thing that gives me all the feels. Or... Uh, is this something that I hate? This makes me want to throw up in my mouth, all right? And those are the only choices, all right, for the game. Love it or hate it. All right, so let's just do a practice, a light one to start. Uh, love it or hate it, pumpkin spice. Think about it. All right, I see some of you reflected in your countenances, which it is. All right, let's do another practice. Uh, Cincinnati chili, love it or hate it. Uh, we won't make this a referendum on your uh, citizenship here uh, in our part of the world. But now let's do it for real, all right, with regard to what we're talking about this morning. Love it or hate it? What do you think? What's your reaction when you hear the word government? Love it or hate it? City Hall? Love it or hate it? I can guess on this one. Taxes? <laughs> Love it or hate it? Maybe a more controversial CDC, love it or hate it. Police, love it or hate it. School board, love it or hate it. In Romans chapter 13, Paul is giving us a blueprint for how we are to understand as our uh, relationship as Christians, how are we to relate to those authorities in the world around us? And this will be for us, I think, a challenging text, because in the climate in which we live, it's normal to assert the need for absolute obedience and submission when there is an authority that we as an individual agree with. And on the other hand, when there's an authority that we as an individual don't agree with, then we think we can treat them with all kinds of scorn and derision or ignore them altogether, as if the standard for applying Romans 13 is our level of personal agreement. But I do want you to note that Paul is writing this to the church that existed in the very shadow of the seat of the pagan Roman Empire, an authority that did not share their views and their values. And even more, about eight to ten years before Paul wrote this letter, the emperor Claudius had expelled the Jewish community from Rome in response to riots in the city. And some of Paul's readers were Jewish Christians and would no doubt have experienced the hardship being expelled from their homes, their businesses. And a few years after this letter is sent, Claudius's stepson, Nero, would launch a purge against the Christians. Nero was the one who lit Christians on fire in the Colosseum. And so it's into this climate that Paul writes what he does in Romans chapter 13. What is the proper way to relate to secular authority, even those with whom we disagree? My fear is that the church in the United States has largely aped the attitudes and the practices of the broader culture. Rather than look like Jesus, we look more like the partisan bickering we see on cable news or talk radio. But Martin Luther King Jr. said the church is meant to be a thermostat, not a thermometer. You know the difference, right? Ther therm thermometers, excuse me, they just reflect what's going on in the room around them, right? They just uh, ape or communicate what is going on in the room around them. But thermostats actually change the temperature in the room. We are called 
to change the temperature. We can be the adults in the room on this issue. We can be part of the mending rather than the rending that's going on around us. And I believe this text can help us toward that end. So let's stop and pray just for a moment to get our hearts and our minds right this morning as we look at God's word. Lord God, the the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word that we're studying right now will never pass away. And so we ask that you would cause this time this morning to be like rain, causing seeds to grow, to be like a hammer on a rock that needs breaking, to be like a flame when we're cold as ice, to be like honey when we need its sweetness. Come, Holy Spirit. No one can do this in our lives but you. Amen. All right, three headings this morning. We're going to talk about the authority of the government. That is, where does it come from? What's the source of the authority of the government? Secondly, uh, what is the purpose of the government? What is it supposed to do? And then finally, what are the responsibilities of Christian citizens? Or as John Stott puts it, what is conscientious citizenship look like. All right, so first, let's talk about the authority of the government. Verse 1, chapter 13, verse 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. The first thing that Paul wants us to see, and I believe is obvious in this text, is that God is the source of all authority. And here, in these first few verses of chapter 13, Paul is channeling his inner Hebrew poetry. Uh, Hebrew poetry doesn't rhyme, it repeats. And of course, Paul would have been trained in reading these ancient Hebrew texts. He was a Pharisee, trained as a Pharisee. And so here, he adopts that kind of approach in terms of its repetition. Verse 1, he says, there is no authority except from God. So God is the source Later on, those that exist have been instituted by God. God is the source. Verse 2, therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. God is the source. And then verse 4, for he that is the magistrate, the, the, the authority, is God's servant. God is the source. So again, God is the source. God is the source. God is the source. Paul is emphasizing That all authority comes from God. He's emphasizing, in fact, the sovereignty of God. So the state is not sovereign, but God is sovereign. Caesar is not the ultimate authority. God is the ultimate authority. And then every other authority that exists does so, according to Paul, because God has put them there. And this is consistent with all of the teaching of the Old Testament that Paul would know very well. Daniel 2, for example, says that God sets up kings and he knocks them down. Right? Everyone that's there is there because God allows it. And this is true, by the way, even for evil regimes. We're told in Jeremiah 27 that God uses Babylon in his plans. King Nebuchadnezzar is called the servant of God. Earlier in Romans, the Apostle Paul says of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, he says, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Jesus says to Pontius Pilate, you have no authority over me that does not come from above. And all these kinds of things led the early church theologian Tertullian, lived from 155 to 240 AD from Carthage. He said, your Caesar, to the, speaking to the Roman Empire, your Caesar is more ours than yours. For our God 
put him there. Now, let me just see if I can draw out just a couple of principles from this. And I'll go through these rather quickly here, all right? Just a couple of quick things uh, to see. All right, first principle. Human authorities are never ultimate. They're always derivative. Human authorities are never ultimate. They're always derivative. Secondly, then, all human authorities are subject to the ultimate authority, to God, which means then that they cannot disobey God without consequence. They will have to give an answer. Everybody in any kind of authority will have to give an answer for how they stewarded their derived authority from God. And the third principle, then, is that no human authority should demand complete and total and blind allegiance. There's a story in Matthew chapter 22 where the Pharisees are pressing Jesus. They say to Jesus, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, this is a trap. They're trying to trap Jesus here because they know if Jesus says, well, don't pay the taxes to Caesar, then they get to go and say to Rome, go get them, boys, right? This is a guy who's trying to keep you from getting what's due to you as the Roman uh, government. But then if Jesus says, on the other hand, if he says, no, pay the taxes to Caesar, they're going to go to the Jews and say, he's collaborating with our oppressors. But listen to how Jesus responds. He says, show me the coin. Whose image is on the coin? Well, Caesar, they say. Well, Jesus then says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And implicit in this response is whose image is on you? Whose image is on you? You are made in the image of God, which means God's image is on you. So give the government a little, give their due, but give to God everything, all of you. It all belongs to him. Now, we've been talking about this principle, God being the source of all authority, as a limit on governmental authority, which is right. But notice Paul's emphasis here in verse 2. It's a warning. Verse 2, he says, Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. In other words, the logic goes like this. If God is the fount of all authority and those who exercise authority on earth do so in delegation from God, therefore, to disobey them, these lesser authorities, is to disobey God. In other words, Paul is saying, we owe the authorities our obedience for God's sake. Now, first let me say, this cannot be absolute. Paul knows here that there are exceptions. And so if there's ever a conflict between what God commands, what human authorities assert, then we have to say what Peter says in Acts chapter 5, verse 29. We must obey God rather than men. But here's how John Stott puts the way that we are to think about this and work this out. And, and I think this is exactly right. He says, we are to obey right up to the point where obedience to the state would entail disobedience to God. But if the state commands what God forbids or forbids what God commands, then our plain Christian duty is to resist, not submit, to disobey the state in order to obey God. And there are notable examples of this kind of disobedience, civil disobedience, in Scripture. When Pharaoh ordered the Hebrew midwives to kill the newborn boys, Exodus chapter 1, they refused to obey. 
When King Nebuchadnezzar issued an edict saying that all the subjects in the kingdom had to fall down and worship a golden image, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to obey. When King Darius made a decree that for 30 days no one should pray to anyone but him, Daniel refused to obey. And when the Sanhedrin banned preaching in the name of Jesus, the apostles refused to obey. Michael Cassidy was a church leader in Africa, founder of uh, African Enterprise. And uh, on October 8th, 1985, so was that 20, wait, four, wait, do my math with me here, 36 years ago this week, something like that? Did I get that right? Yeah, whatever. Uh, they don't pay me for math. Uh, You don't want me to do your taxes, I don't think. October 8th, 1985, uh, Michael Cassidy was called to a a meeting with the president of South Africa, P.W. Botha. Cassidy was really excited about this meeting. He'd been praying for a meeting like this because he was a part uh, of the movement to abolish the policy of apartheid, the racial segregation and the policies that reinforced uh, the inequalities that existed in South Africa. And so Cassidy had been praying for the opportunity to meet with and to speak with President Botha. And so he's very excited to go to this meeting. He goes to the president's office, but he said within moments of the beginning of the meeting, his hopes were dashed that this would go well because President Botha began by quoting to him from Romans chapter 13. And then he demanded that as an expression of Romans 13 that uh, Mr. Cassidy, Michael Cassidy, and and his organization must in fact support the government's policies of apartheid. And Michael Cassidy, now humbly and respectfully, said to the president, you must repent. And he kept working to undermine apartheid. So this command to submit is not absolute. Our highest authority is always God. We must obey God rather than men. But listen, that's got to be the standard for disobedience. The standard is not whether we like it or not. The standard is not whether we voted for whoever's in office or not. The standard is honest and glad submission as far as we can go because we acknowledge that God is the source of all authority. And to follow through on this, you really have to believe in the sovereignty of God. We have to believe the words of the hymn, this is my father's world. Oh, let me never forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. And so as members of the city of God, Christians should be, in every way that we can, the very best citizens of the city of man, the authority of the government. But secondly, let's talk about the purpose of the government. Verse 3, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Purpose of government. What is government for? And Paul here in verses three and four, he's talking about what ought to be. He's not talking about what always 
is. And, and we use language like this all the time, right? If my children um, speak disrespectfully to somebody, right? If they speak meanly to somebody, uh, I might say something like, hey, listen, you guys, we're Ritanos. That's not how we talk. Now, Obviously, that is sometimes how Ritanos talk, right? They just did it, which would occasion that conversation. But what I'm saying when I say, this is not what Ritanos do, this is not how we talk, what I'm saying is that's not how it ought to be. Well, that's what Paul is describing here in verses 3 and 4. He knows that sometimes rulers are terrors to good conduct, but in verses 3 and 4, he's talking about the purpose. He's talking about what ought to be. And to summarize, Augustine Again, in his book, The City of God, he says, the city of man, that is human authorities, human civilization, human governments, the city of man exists to restrain the ruin of the fallen world by protecting what is good and punishing what is wrong. The curse, in other words, is in the world, human governments exist as a mitigating factor on the effects of the fall. So what do governments do? They are supposed to restrain evil. In the 1850s, there was a book called Coral Island. Yeah, there's the sort of delightful picture on the front there. It was a, uh, about a bunch of young English schoolboys who were shipwrecked on an island, and they had to build a whole new world, a whole new civilization. And so they created uh, a paradise of love and equality and brotherhood. It was a utopia. And they were all, all the boys were so intrinsically good that there actually wasn't the need for laws. There wasn't the need for government or organization. Now, you've probably never heard of this book because it's stupid. <laughs> it's so out of touch <laughs> with human nature. A hundred years later, another book was published that I bet you have heard of. It's called The Lord of the Flies. English schoolboys, shipwrecked on an island, doesn't turn out the same way. They vie for power, they kill each other, they hunt one another down. Each of them wants to bear the sword of vengeance for their power and for their control. And it was absolute chaos. Verse 4 says government is meant to mitigate that. It's to bear the sword in order to restrain wickedness. The sword is meant, it's, it's the ability to punish Evil, But can you imagine a world, can you imagine the chaos that would entail where each citizen claims to bear the sword? We've actually had moments like that in regions of our country at times. You know what we called those? Lynch mobs, right? And it was a disaster for justice. So governments have authority to curb violence, to curb evil, jails, police, judicial systems, laws are designed toward that end. But secondly, though... Government authorities exist to promote or reward good. This positive function of the state is harder to understand sometimes, maybe a little bit more controversial in terms of how it might be worked out. But think about things like, right, if, if the ease of travel is good, well, then a positive uh, role for the government might be roads and infrastructure. If clean water is good, the treatment of water is a good thing. All the Norwood residents can make your dead bird jokes now. But uh, uh, zoning, right? We, sometimes we get mad about zoning, but uh, you want some zoning, I'm guessing. You don't want the uh, sewage plant to go in right next to your house or to the playground, right? Uh, those are goods, positively. And, and from a biblical view, the state rightfully has the authority to incentivize behavior 
that has a positive outcome for the state and its citizens. So, for example, if the nation knows that, say, strong families make for good communities, well, then there can be things like tax credits for children, not only to make it more affordable to have children, but more affordable to give them care, to be at home with them as much as possible. Or our longstanding policy in this country of not taxing 501c3 nonprofits and churches, right? If the good is, right, that we know that lots of organizations scattered throughout the community doing good to to build into the life of, of people and their neighbors within the community, if that's a good, then a positive assertion, you know, could be something like those laws. Restrain evil, promote good. I just want you to, before we move on to the last point here, just notice in verses four and five, that the governmental authority is referred to by Paul as the servant of God. Verse 4, it says, he is God's servant for your good. Later in the same verse, where he is the servant of God, an avenger, carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Verse 6, for because of this, you also pay taxes for the authorities are ministers of God, servant of God, servant of God, ministers of God. Now, listen, I bring this up because, and, 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 and I'm painting with a broad brush here, Somebody's going to get mad and feel like this is an unfair characterization, but I'm, I'm, I'm acknowledging this as a stereotype up front, all right? But I think it's rooted in something. So I'm just going to give it to you, and if you get mad, you know, tell me about it. But, or, or don't. I'm fine with that, too. <laughs> here's, the, here, here, here's what I mean. The political left, broadly speaking, tends to view government as savior. The political right, generally speaking, tends to view government as Satan. But the Bible says neither are true. The proper understanding is servant, the servant of God. For there is no authority from God, except from God, excuse me, and those that exist have been instituted by God. They exist as a servant of God to restrain evil and to reward good. All right, finally, let's talk about then what is our responsibility to live in the world like this? What is conscientious citizenship? And that's, that's John Stott's phrase. Uh, the Westminster Larger Catechism, the Presbyterian Catechism, actually has a lot to say about this. I'll, I'll just put it up there and read it for you. Question 127 uh, says this. What is the honor that inferiors, that, those that are subordinate, owe to their superiors, to those who are in authority over them in any way? And here's the answer. The honor which inferiors owe to their superiors is... All due reverence in heart, word, and behavior, prayer and thanksgiving for them, imitations of their virtues and graces, willing obedience to their lawful commands and counsels, due submission to their corrections, fidelity to defense and maintenance of their persons and authority, according to their several ranks and the nature of their places, bearing with their infirmities and covering them in love that so they may be an honor to them and to their government. You see, that answer there is trying to draw out the teaching of Romans chapter 13, as well as other places like 1 Peter chapter 2. And there's a lot in there, in Westminster Confession, but let me uh, just see if I can summarize what is explicit for us in our text this morning in Romans 13. What is our relationship? What, what are we supposed to be doing? We are to submit, to support, and to honor the authorities in our lives, right? Well, first, we're to submit. That is honestly and gladly submit in every way that we can. Paul says this is right. It's the right thing because 
Every authority is instituted by God. Secondly, he says it's wise, right? It's no fun to be on the wrong side of authority. And so if you're going to be on the wrong side of authority, you better make sure it's for the right reasons, he says. And, and then he says it's fair. Pay to all what is owed, verse 7. And sure, some misuse authority, but many, many, many are working hard for the good of those they serve. And as we said earlier, there are times for civil disobedience, but the first step, that's what Paul is talking about. He's not talking about the exception. He's talking about the rule. What's our general inclination? What's our first instinct? It should be to submit to authorities over us. F.F. Bruce put it this way. He said, but Christians will voice their no to Caesar's unauthorized demands the more effectively if they have shown themselves ready to say yes to his authorized demands. That is, your disobedience will witness more powerfully if you are otherwise obedient and gracious and humble. Wang Yi is the pastor of Early Rain Church in China. He's involved with China Partnership. We've we've talked about him here before uh, at times. He's coming up now on, it'll be December, will be three years uh, since he's been separated from his family. He's been put in prison uh, by the Chinese government. Three years of a nine-year term for the crime of criticizing the government's treatment of the church, um, government's record on human rights. And knowing that he was likely to be arrested, he uh, wrote an article called My Declaration of Faithful Disobedience, which was to be published after he was detained. You can find it online. I recommend it to you. Let me read to you just a little bit. He says, I firmly believe that the Bible has not given any branch of any government the authority to run the church or to interfere with the faith of Christians. Therefore, the Bible demands that I, through peaceable means, in meek resistance, in active forbearance, filled with joy, resist all administrative policies and legal measures that oppress the church and interfere with the faith of Christians. He goes on with a powerful critique of the Chinese government's persecution. But what's equally wonderful is not just the rebuke that he offers, but the love that he shows for China and its people. The affirmation that he respects authority and he actually longs to submit wherever he can. We're called to that kind of submission and disobedience at times. But secondly, we are also called to support. That's part of our role as citizens, to participate. That is, vote in elections, participate in government and its activities wherever possible, in your community especially. These are opportunities for us to be involved. Also to pay your taxes. Actually, Paul says it twice in there because he knows, I think, that you may be tempted to rationalize this away, right? To pay our taxes. You might say, all right, well, there's so much waste Listen, I've been to some of your houses. There's waste there too, all right? (laughs) Pay our taxes. Pray for authorities. No Christian should be criticizing government authorities that we're not also praying for. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 says, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, but especially for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly, and dignified in every way. And then lastly, honor. 
Verse 7, pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. First, First Peter 2.17 says this, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Don't fawn over your leaders. The Bible says put not your trust in princes. But also don't grumble at them either. Give them the respect and honor they are due. And the truth is we might need to do some repenting here. I've been thinking about this, using this text in my own heart a lot this week, right? We might need to do some repenting. You might need to step away from a particularly caustic news source. You might need to rid yourself of what now they're calling outrage porn that is over all over the place on social media and the internet in general. We might need to be asking ourselves the question, how can we be a part of the mending rather than the rending? How can we be a thermostat rather than a thermometer? I said earlier that if you're going to do any of this, we need to have confidence in the sovereignty of God. And nobody embodied that confidence more than Jesus. John chapter 19, it tells the story of Jesus standing before Pilate, the Roman ruler in Judea. Pilate had Jesus flogged as Pilate watches. The soldiers twisted a crown of thorns. They shoved it deep down onto his brow. They put a purple robe on him. They mocked him and said, Hail, King of the Jews. They beat him. Pilate goes out to talk to the crowds. The crowds begin to shout, Crucify him, crucify him. So Pilate comes back in and asks Jesus, Where do you come from? He gives no answer. Jesus actually doesn't say much to Pilate. He was, as Isaiah put it, like a lamb before his shearers, silent. So Pilate says, you'll not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And with calm confidence, Jesus replies, John 19, 11, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given from above. This is the hopeful confidence of somebody who knows the sovereignty of God over every human ruler and authority. Jesus did not speak violently or mockingly or with volatility. He simply was saying, as you do your worst, Pilate, my Father in heaven and I here on earth are working the salvation of the world. Even when you do evil, God will use it for good. This is my Father's world. And let me never forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. Let's pray. Lord, we do want to grow up into the likeness of Jesus Christ. We want to look like him and not like the world. We want to testify to the coming of another world. And so we ask for a calm confidence in your rule that would enable us to properly honor all the lesser authorities in our lives. And when we do need to practice disobedience to those authorities. May we do so out of concern for your honor and your glory and not our own selfish ambition. In Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's New City. C-I-N-C-Y dot org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.